marks an anniversary of sorts. Uh, in the year 2007, Anne be began working with a select group of people, coordinating music and all sorts of things, and it developed, it grew to what we just heard and participated in, in terms of worship. And I want to recognize Anne for a great 15 years of work and ministry together. This is heavy, so <laughs> I'll just put it here. you. Thanks for joining me in that. So, Anne, of course, had been here long before me, and uh, even long before the 15 years. Not that she's that old, but she, she started at age six, and she was, she was conducting the, the children's choirs here at Grace. She did an internship here, and uh, is, is one of our own, uh, a Grace girl, and trained in ministering to our family. I'm grateful for this. Um, she does a whole lot more than what you see. We certainly do see a lot. We enjoy the cantatas, the concerts, the, uh, the times of ed special edification. We're together at, uh, say, fellowship dinners, um, but also then those special seasons, you know, seasons of Lent and Advent, Holy Week. And a lot goes into this. And she works with a number of teams, and not only the ones that were on the screen, a lot of other teams. And Anne loves the Lord. She loves the church. She loves this church. And when she sees something that could be done quite often, probably more often than not, she'll do something about it. Just takes initiative with it. Anne has a, an outstanding work ethic. She has a deep sense of devotion, a great sense of duty and delight in that. And I just thank the Lord for you. Thank the Lord. Bless you. All right. Well, shall we um, open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? We're going to read uh, about verse 8 uh, through 16. We're nearing the end of our season here with Hebrews, and it's been a, a good season, I think, um, a challenging season in a sense that some of the themes about Jesus repeat. But that's the whole point, isn't it? We need to keep being reminded to keep our eyes on Jesus, to look to him. Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 8. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people, through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Shall we pray and ask for that Holy Spirit to guide us? Indeed, Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who shines into our lives, shines into the darkness, and brings light. We ask now that you would indeed uh, illumine our understanding by sending the Spirit. Grant us the same Spirit that we would be able to discern all things and we would rejoice in his comfort. For Jesus' sake, amen. This section we just read is bracketed by the concept of leadership, the dynamic of leadership that is within our, our assembly together. And what we're looking at is in verse 7, uh, the text says, remember your leaders. And then in verse uh, 17, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, sandwiched between these two leadership slices of bread is the meat, the substance. It is, in a sense, the content of their teaching. This is what we're supposed to obey. This is what we're supposed to follow, is this nugget of teaching, this core truth that they would proclaim. And in that, then, we will be a healthy body. That is, the body of Christ, an assembly of believers. This content we'll we'll label as really the dynamic of worship. We've looked at stewardship, leadership, uh, and now we'll come to this idea of, of worship. In, in some cases, we might say worship is the most important thing we do, and there's an element of truth in that. For in the scope of eternity, it is the one thing that we will keep on doing continually again and again and again. But in our setting here, it's not really the most important, but all of these dynamics of, of ships together comprise what it is to be the church, and so they overlap They're integrated into one another, but with particular and special emphasis. But it is with this, then, that we will nourish our hearts, this particular aspect, isn't it? It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Well, we're going to be able to survive the difficult areas, difficult seasons of life together as a church, and in the days ahead, which for the Hebrew church was filled with persecution and suffering. And their temptation was to go back to their old way of life. And in this case, they were already religious people. They were practicing Jews before they came to Christ. And so the temptation for them is to go back to that way of worship, that way of life, which meant no great resistance, not to the point of death, not to the point of shedding blood. But worship is crucial. Worship is essential. And it is through this focus on exalting Christ, extending his grace, that indeed we are strengthened, strengthened by his grace. Well, the temptation is to blend in, to avoid being challenged for being a Christian. Uh, The Jews didn't worship the emperor any more than the Christians would worship the emperor. You remember in our discussion in the past, the emperor worship was, was quite 
uh, high at its time. And it, in some documents, you have this sense in which you take a pinch of incense once a year, go into the, the pagan temple, and say, Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christian doesn't. The Christian can't. The Christian rather says, Jesus is Lord. And there is no other Lord. There is no other king. There is no other emperor but Jesus, at least not one that's exalted above him. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and him alone will we worship. Now, things start to go sour. The weather goes bad. Plagues start to come. Uh, economy is difficult. Who's, who's to blame? The people that didn't worship Caesar. Christians. So then pressure comes on. And we got this sense in Hebrews earlier that they had suffered, they've lost lands, they've lost property, they've been imprisoned, they haven't quite yet been killed for their faith, but the hint is it may be coming. So when, when they're faced with this, then the, the simple thing to do is, well, let's just kind of blend in with our roots, with our Jewish ways. And so we'll go to the tap temple and we'll offer those sacrifices We'll, we'll keep the holy days, the feast days of, of Jerusalem. And we'll play this kosher scenario out in the way we live. Because though the Jews didn't worship the emperor, in Roman law, they were exempt from suffering. Curious, isn't it? It, it causes us to consider what would we do what will we do when such a day comes? Will we cave? Will we, well, will we betray our Lord, the once and for all time sacrifice made on our behalf? Him and only Him. Or will we revert? To do so is indeed Betrayal, treason. No, but we are to be strengthened by grace and not by, not by foods. I'm curious to, to bring up this idea of foods, but note that many of the sacrifices were edible. You know, all the sacrifices were organic, in a sense. Some of them you actually got to participate in and eat. In fact, most of the services of the day would conclude with a fellowship offering, in which at least the priest would partake most of the time, and once in a while the, the worshipers uh, would eat of that sacrificial lamb as well and enjoy the fellowship with one another before the Lord. So, foods. But the old covenant dietary laws, like no pork, difficult for us Christians on Easter when we have ham, isn't it? No pork and things of that nature they would revert back to that. Those would be daily, visible manifestations that, yes, we're kosher too. And disavowing their Christianity. Peter struggled with this. You remember Peter in Acts chapter 10 actually had a vision uh, that repeated three times. A sheet coming down from heaven and all kinds of animals upon it. Even unclean animals. Shellfish. Pork. Uh, rabbit. I think, I think, yeah, rabbit, 
chew the cud but don't have a hoof, so they're unclean. I think that's right. And, and the Lord says, how can anything I made be unclean? Go ahead and eat. And Peter says, Lord, I've never, never eaten anything unclean in my life. He says, again, how can anything I made be unclean? Eat. This happens three times, and Peter's trying to figure out what in the world does this mean? And then knocking on the door down below are some Gentile, uh, non-Jewish people that want to have ministry, have Peter minister to them. And he realizes, ah, they're people created in God's image as well. I'll go and minister to them. And indeed, among the, among the Gentiles, he acted and, and lived as a Gentile. He ate what they ate. He drank what they drank. But then some of the uh, big shots from Jerusalem come to do their kind of ministry tour, and they see Peter, and Peter, Peter uh, has been eating you know, with the un- impure foods and impure people. Uh, and so then he backs off, and he begins to again embrace and, and use the Jewish dietary laws. Now, Paul, Paul has some harsh words to say in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, in the fact that Peter was betraying the gospel by that very act, treating different people uh, unequally and manifesting that in his diet. So this is a problem, a real problem, even among the disciples, a real problem. But the, the thing for us to ponder, and there's not a lot really to expound in this passage and really not a lot to expound in other passages. We are strengthened by the grace of God. Strengthened by the grace of God. Our name is Grace. Grace Bible. GBC is okay. But, I mean, that could be any number of Georgetown Bible or Granville Bible or We're grace. It's our name. It's our value. It's our doctrine. Grace. We're saved by grace. Nothing of of ourselves. It's the gift of God that we would come to faith by the working of the Holy Spirit to bring us alive into Christ. We begin with grace, and we live by grace. We're strengthened by the grace. Yes, saved by grace, but strengthened by the very same grace. Yes, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, with God himself, but it is God who first works in us. He will complete the good work that he's began in us. We live by grace. We're sanctified by grace. We're strengthened by grace. And so often we, too, fall into at least an attitude, if not a behavior, where I have to do something to get stronger in grace, in faith. No, it is to rest. This is where Hebrews began, to rest in the Lord. And by resting in the Lord, then we are strengthened by His grace. This indeed is our name, this is why we highlight the verse in 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 18. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, now and unto the ages. Amen. To grow in the grace. And that's why we're here. 
to encourage one another to grow in the grace of God, to know Christ, to know Him deeper and more intimately, continuously. Strengthened by grace, that is a value in our worship. Verses 10 to 12 go on uh, explaining something really dynamic. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The old order of sacrifice, as we mentioned, had altars and and sacrifices of animals and grains and food offerings, but they would conclude with the fellowship offering. But these, these sacrifices um, were, were sacrificed outside the camp and the blood brought in to the holy place. Now, Hebrews has been moving us. The, the whole epistle has been moving us from exile in, in Egypt, so to speak, into the place of rest Uh, to the outer courts of the temple in a better priesthood, and finally into the most holy place, through the curtain that separated us from God, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, is the veil that was rent, that we might enter into the throne room of God boldly. The whole epistle has been moving us that way, and now in the end, it talks about the fellowship offering the food offering. We have an altar from which to eat. Now, some uh, pre-Reformation sanctuaries have an altar. Protestant churches, at least of our Bible stripe, don't have an altar. Well, perhaps we need to footnote that. Oh, in the revivalistic eras, yes, we would have altar calls. Uh, But that's a misuse of the term and a misunderstanding of what the altar is. The altar is for the people of God. And the altar is here. Not in the re-sacrificing sort of way, no. And that's why we don't have an altar in the strict sense, like some of the other pre-Reformation churches would. No. But we have an altar. And the the preacher of the Hebrews is is bringing this point almost in in a... pungent way. We get to eat with God in His presence. Now, this has been anticipated. Moses and the elders, Nadab and Abihu even, were in the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel And there was under his feet, as it were, pavement, a sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he didn't lay his hand on the chief men of Israel, but they beheld God and ate and drank. Now, in the Old Covenant, it was Moses, Aaron, the high priest, the elders. But in the New Covenant, every single one of us are able to enter into the holy place and enjoy the presence of God and feast with Him. This is radical. 
This is revolutionary. And the, the truth is, these are real sacrifices. These are the real sacrifices. Those of the Old Covenant were shadows, types of the reality that is to come. Jesus Christ is the reality. He's the real sacrifice. The others are simply models pointing to him. Oh, we so easily turn it around, don't we? Jesus is the real sacrifice. And we of the new covenant feast on his body and his blood. He is the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the living water. It is his blood that has washed our sins white as snow. It is his blood that was poured on the heavenly altar, the real one in heaven. The one in Jerusalem was just a copy and a bad one at that. It was just a copy. The real one in heaven and Christ has poured his blood. Oh, it's so dynamic here, isn't it? The high priest would make that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And only he would be able to go into the holy place and apply the blood. But the sacrifice was taken outside the camp and burnt up. Outside the encampment, outside the city walls, unholy place, wilderness. Those sacrifices were dead carcasses. But Christ was sacrificed on the outside. And then he brought his blood in himself. Amazing. He went and did what none of the people could do. And he went and did once and for all what the high priest was really just pretending to do. Oh, I know, we need to be more acquainted with our our Old Testament patterns, don't we? But indeed, we have an altar. And I must, in a sense, apologize. Um, we, We will have the Lord's Supper next Sunday. We didn't want to detract from the table with all the other things going on and happening. But this, this is, in fact, what the people of God in the New Testament did every Lord's Day. They ate together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day at the Lord's table. It was intricate to, or intrinsic to their worship. It should be for ours as well, at least, at least in remembering and commemorating our place and identity with Jesus Christ. Now you're saying, wait a minute, you eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Well, yes. Jesus taught us in John chapter 6, verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
And Christ's invitation in Revelation 3.20 is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who opens the door, I will enter in and eat with them. Yes, we have a new covenant meal. We celebrate. Now, Jesus, when he gave us the institution of the Lord's Supper, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he poured and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. So we understand from the biblical theology, very rational, very clear, we don't, we're not cannibalistic. And we don't re-sacrifice Jesus on an altar as the mass would do. We don't re-sacrifice Jesus over and over and over again and then take and eat of that in some transubstantiary way. No. But it is, he takes, these are symbols of the reality. His body given for us, a sacrifice for sin. And we are to partake of him and his sacrifice. We are to drink of him and so be united with him. And so, be united in his resurrection. So we eat and we drink. Now we say, it is a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. It's celebratory of the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death. And we rejoice. But could it be that we don't value it and emphasize it quite enough? For the early church, indeed, was accused of cannibalism. They believed so intently in the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for them and the meal that symbolized that sacrifice of which now they all become partakers. They held it and practiced it to such a way that they could easily have been misunderstood and accused of cannibalism. Now, of course, you know how the enemy mind works. They'll take any just little, little glint in the armor and just crack it wide open. They'll take any little nugget and just exasperate it, right? We understand. But the verse goes on, verse 13, bearing his reproach, doesn't it? Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We bear his reproach and we're sanctified by his blood. To leave the encampment meant the person was un unclean. And Jesus was sacrificed outside the city gates at Golgotha, the place of the skull. Paradoxically, though, his sacrifice made on the outside made the people holy. His blood shed actually became the cleansing fount. It calls to mind that we are to also suffer with him and to carry our cross daily. We are to bear his reproach. Think of even Simon the Cyrene, who along the path, as Jesus is marched to Golgotha, bearing the cross member, Jesus stumbles after having been beaten and mistreated and, and not no sleep. They grab Simon from the crowd, and Simon then carries the cross member all the way to Golgotha. The image is here that we too bear the reproach of Jesus. 
Will you carry the cross? Oh, we love the glory. But will you carry the cross? Will you bear reproach for his name? Will you continue to identify with him and with his name? It's interesting as well that this becomes kind of missional. For the place of our Christian service is too on the outside. It's in the midst of the place of suffering. It's in the place of unbelief. And there we shine as lights in the world. We bear the reproach, we seek the city. Verse 14, we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. Well, this has been the theme throughout Hebrews, hasn't it? Moving from Egypt and exile into the land of rest and finally the, the city where the name of the Lord would dwell, the holy city, but recognizing again, the holy city Jerusalem was just an illustration, just a model of the reality. There is a heavenly city that is to come. Jesus said, I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come for you, that you might be where I am. He's preparing a holy city, a heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21 describes it as coming down out of heaven, and the dwelling place of God will be with men. Heaven and earth kissing one another, embracing one another, one. This indeed is the consummation of all things, the bridegroom and the bride together as one, united. In Hebrews chapter 11, the faithful are looking forward to the city whose foundations and designer and builder is God. They desired a better country, a heavenly one, and so God is not ashamed to be their God. He has prepared for them a city. In chapter 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's where you really belong. That is where your citizenship is. If you belong to Jesus, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Brothers, sisters, I pray that it does. I pray that we will not so be caught in the eye candy of, of this earthly city, which is decaying. I was driving in this morning with, with one of my sons, and we were reflecting a little bit on maintenance uh, and, and how everything requires maintenance. Our bodies, our cars, our buildings, our yards, everything. And I said, what is that law where everything is falling apart? The law of entropy, right? Is that it? The second law of thermodynamics. That was in my head. Before COVID came and I got the fog, right? No. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything's falling apart. Now, I mean, that has a whole kinds of worldview consequences, doesn't it? And, and maybe we should do something in Genesis sometime. We have a city that is eternal, everlasting, 
and it's coming. Why, why play around in the mud when glory is coming? Well, we finally get to the sacrifices in verses 15 and 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Continual sacrifice. Not only on Lord's Day, not only when we gather here. This is important. This is essential. This cannot be without. You can't be the church without this. But our entire life is a sacrifice. We now become the sacrifice. Romans 12.1 Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service, your worship. The whole of you, your lips that bring praise and your hands that bring forth good things for your neighbors for your brothers and your sisters. There are sacrifices to be offered in the Spirit. Jesus came and he talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, those who worship will worship in spirit and truth. Praise God for this day. We remember the sending of God's Holy Spirit to baptize the church, to inaugurate this age, and to indwell every believer, that we would be filled and refilled and walk and keep in step with the Spirit and bear the fruit that is in keeping with the Spirit. We are a priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to offer spiritual sacrifices unto God. Our attitude is one of reverence and awe, said Hebrews chapter 12, is oriented by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. This is how we worship. And our sacrifices, one, are praising God, verse 15. Yes, praise. Oh, be careful, little lips, what you say. Every word that proceeds from our mouth is to be reverential and worshipful. It ought to edify all those around us to build them up, one, as those created in the image of God and so honor God, and to move them on toward being recreated in the image of Christ, the new creation, the new man. This is really nothing new. Uh, even the Old Testament begin to recognize this. Psalm 27 and verse 6. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Music. Music, praise, needs to be part of your daily life. You know, I'm, I don't have a singer. I don't either. I used to, I think. 
but of inactivity and lack of exercise, my range is like this. But sing and make melody in your heart. Turn the radio up louder. Turn the, turn the podcast louder so you don't hear yourself. I, I'm, I don't know. That, don't, I'm not speaking as the professional, okay? Just experiential. The louder it is, the better I sound. Praise. It's the fruit of our lips. Speak to one another kindly, reverentially, worshiping God. Be careful of your jokes, your innuendos, the sarcasm. Build one another up and worship the Lord. And then things that are pleasing to God, verse 16, not that the praises aren't, but these are the kinds of sacrifices that bring pleasure to God do good and share. You teach your children this. Be nice to one another. Be nice to your brother. Be nice to your sister. Share your toys. Share the gifts that God has given with your brothers and your sisters. With these things, you will worship him. This is the way Jesus did. This is the way he worshiped the Father and the way that he loved his bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This, act, this aspect of worship is, is convergent with the acts of leadership, the acts of stewardship, the acts of fellowship all important activities and values of who we are as Grace Bible Church. And as the days go forward, increasingly we will need to come back and remember this is what we do. This is what we value and this is who we value. So, Father, we come and we ask that indeed you would prepare us, equip us, enable us for whatever the days would come ahead. We see great violence in the world around us. We see, indeed, uh, disfavor has turned its tide toward the church, toward Christianity, toward believers. Some of it, perhaps, uh, unsolicited. Uh, but it surprises us. It shocks us. Now, God, may we not indeed be surprised by the fiery trial that comes, but may indeed our faith, our hope, our love be purified and cleansed to be refined by this fire to come forth as pure gold. Take our life together, our worship, our leadership, our stewardship, our fellowship. May we abound in these things. May we acknowledge, admit, confess, our need for the moving of your Holy Spirit even as we celebrate this day. So would the fire embolden us, the wind be the movement in the sails of our life and ministry, and the thunderous sound 
be the proclamation of the gospel from this vantage point. Indeed, Lord, we need the moving of your Spirit. We need it for our ministry to be fruitful. We need it for our families to be whole. We need it for our lives to be holy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.